gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I feel like I haven't talked to you guys in a million years because I've done all this traveling and had all these meetings that make me cut myself. But we've had a really great string of of really phenomenal quality guests, and we figured that what we needed to do is we needed to even things out a little bit, (laughs) Um, bring down that average, right? So lower expectations. And so there's really no one better for lowering expectations than my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Michael Strain, who not only runs the economics shop over there, so it's like all of these, there's like green eye shades lying around all over the place. A lot of protractors. A lot of protractors. So many protractors. And those um, those old Wurlitzer Hooligag adding machine, sure, calculating sure, machines. Sure, sure, um, The ones that print the tape in real time. Yes, yes. Um, it's, it sounds like a lot of ferrets with long fingernails walking on the floor there because everything's clicking. Um, but you're also now some sort of fancy pants uh, college professor type person, right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> uh, you're teaching at Georgetown? I am, yes. What, what, what are you teaching? Like, what's the, what's the actual class? I know it's economics, but like, what's the class? The class, it's the, uh, so I'm teaching in the MPP program, the uh, Master's of Public Policy program, and I am teaching the, uh, that, that program has a two-semester requirement in microeconomics, and I'm teaching the first semester of that two-semester uh, required uh, sequence. So what is the, what is, the, what is, just out of curiosity, what is the classic thing? I'm not sure, I'm sure it's not assigned in every micro class, but like, what is like the thing that like everyone sort of remembers having been assigned for reading in like, in in micro like what is what is the what are some of the er texts well we don't do a lot of texts so it's much more oh, that's right your number yes there there are there are uh numbers and there are a lot of graphs um and it's uh you know very much focused on kind of teaching you know making sure what, well the way that i approach the class at least is to is to really try and kind of hammer home some big high level concepts uh in economics you know i think 10 years from now when these students are policy professionals you know somewhere in washington they're not going to remember you know how to draw the graph of what happens in a monopolistically competitive market when you know someone when a new firm enters or whatever but i want them to have really internalized some uh, you know kind of simple sounding but actually quite the deep and important insights like opportunity cost, like people respond to incentives, like the law of unintended consequences, uh, like uh, businesses, firms um, maximize objectives subject to constraints. Uh, the notion of equilibrium is a very important one. You know, both in a we do a game theoretic equilibrium, uh, equilibrium and strategic interactions. Uh, you know, most famously the Nash equilibrium, uh, also uh, equilibrium in uh, in different types of markets and uh, competitive markets and uh, monopsonistically competitive markets, a monopolistically competitive markets, that sort of stuff. And so, I like that you live a life where you can accidentally misspeak and use the word monopolistically mon- competitive <laughs> markets instead of monopolistically. Um, it's hard. So There are a lot of them. One of the things I never understood is, like, I understand the difference between micro and macro in a general sense, right? Like, micro is 
uh, sort of bottom up, looking at the economy from 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 the ground kind of thing, right? And macro looks from sort of above, whatever, something like that, right? Why Mike? Why are they called micro and macro? Because like when you talk about supply and demand, supply and demand sounds like a pretty holistic macro point of view. Mm-hmm. Like why um why the terms micro the the, the prefixes micro and macro? Why not you know government versus yeah, it used to be, I mean, it's, you know, there's it, there, there's an interesting kind of intellectual history to it. So there used to just kind of be, you know, economics, right? Um, and economics, of course, kind of began as a branch of moral philosophy. Um, and then for a while it was, you know, referred to as political economy. Uh, and then uh, as it started to become, you know, kind of more, more rigorous, you started seeing uh, just the word economics used and that you know was uh kind of exactly as you described uh, you know we have we have supply we have demand what happens when demand changes what happens when supply changes why would demand change why would supply change that sort of stuff uh and this is and now we're kind of in the classical uh period of 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 of, of economics um was referred to as classical economics then we had this big event right the um great uh, depression uh, you know, classical economics said that that prices would adjust and you wouldn't have unemployment for long and you wouldn't have shortages and you wouldn't have all this stuff. And so, you know, now economics is kind of an abject failure. Um, and this is when you saw, you know, the development of of uh, of macroeconomics, right, where, you know, OK, all this stuff we've been doing, maybe this is for single markets, maybe the kind of economy as a whole behaves differently. You know, and then you saw the development of um, uh, Keynes's general theory. You saw then Sir John Hicks and others kind of come along and try and formalize that in models like the ISLM model. You know, people who've taken undergraduate economics classes, all this should should be familiar. Um, but you know, then you know the kind of more rigorous economists came along and said, you know, great, but this is like all all bullshit. Where's this coming from? you know, the consumption function and all this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, that began an effort kind of as the 20th century continued uh, to unif- to have an economics, to not have micro and not have macro and, and to ground macroeconomics uh, in as rigorous a foundation as, uh, as, as microeconomics. And, and you, you know, it's very common uh, to hear the phrase micro founded macro. And so this led to uh, the kind of style of economics where it said, okay, let's, you know, you know, people, you know, how do we do this rigorously? People maximize their utility, firms maximize their profits, you know, but boy, there are like, you know, 330 million people in the United States, you know, so let's pretend there's one person and then, and let's pretend there's one firm and, you know, why would it matter? And, uh, uh, if we, if we, you know, had more, had more or fewer, uh, and that effort to, that effort to kind of unify economics so that there isn't a micro and there isn't a macro, um, you know, made a lot of progress kind of within the academy to the point that when I was a graduate student, I took first semester micro and first semester macro, but my first semester macro class required that I understood everything that was being taught in first semester micro. They were so they were so related. Then the financial crisis happens, and then there's this big soul searching, you know, period again in macro, 
uh, economics where, where people are saying, you know, what, you know, what on earth have you guys been doing? I mean, you know, very similar to what happened in the Great Depression period. And there were congressional hearings where economists were, you know, called uh, before committees of the House and the Senate and said, you know, what, what the hell's been going on in economics? What are you guys doing? Um, uh, you know, that has had its own effects on the kind of development of, of, of uh, uh, academic economics research. You know, I, I mean, for me personally, um, when I am thinking about individual behavior, individual markets, um, the effects of public policy. So, you know, if we were to, you know, expand the child tax credit, if we were to, you know, cut the corporate tax rate, this sort of stuff, you know, I reach immediately to the, uh, uh, microeconomic models and the tools of microeconomic analysis. If I am thinking about, um, okay, you know, President Biden wants to pass the American Rescue Plan, which is a $2 trillion spending package, you know, what is that going to do to inflation? What is that going to do to economic output? What is that going to do to unemployment in the labor market? Then I reach really to the kind of ISLM style macroeconomics. ISLM is what for normal people? The the mathematical formulization of the kind of Keynesian general theory framework. Um, and so for the for a lot of the for a lot of the policy work I do, you know, I still keep them very separate. And I find that that's that's you know that's what works best. So it's interesting. So a couple of things. One, I didn't. I don't. Th- either I knew and forgot, or I didn't know. Um, that macro was created by the Great Depression. I don't think we've ever, I don't know if we're in agreement or violent disagreement or violent agreement on this, but like, I think it's sort of funny, the story that you tell um, insofar as, so Congress calls in a bunch of economists and says, what would you say you do here, right? And like yells at them after the financial crisis. The idea that somehow it was the failure of the classical economists for the Great Depression or the failure of the classical economists for the financial crisis strikes me as problematic. And I'm one of these people, and I, 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 can, I wasn't planning on doing any of this, but like I, I used to be pretty deep into the literature on this. I'm one of these people who thinks that one of the things that made the Great Depression great was the government interventions in the Great Depression. Um, some were justified, don't get me wrong. Some weren't. It's part of my whole spiel about the Great Depression and, and, and the New Deal is people say the New Deal worked. And I was like, well, which New Deal? The first New Deal or the second New Deal, which political historians differentiate? Do you mean FDR pulling out of the London financial crisis, which was a huge blow to international stabilization of economies? Or do you mean like the bank holidays? Or do you mean Social Security? Because by FDR and the New Dealers' own admissions, there were an enormous number of things that they tried that didn't work. And they said, OK, we'll try something else. You can't say that the whole New Deal worked when major components of the New Deal, by their own admission, didn't work, and that's why they were sort of abandoned. The National Recovery Administration, I think, was a sort of fascistic nightmare. But um, we'd had great, de- we'd had serious depressions before. Even Paul Krugman, who's the big New Deal work, fixed everything guy, when pressed, has to admit that it was actually World War II <laughs> that pulled us out of the Great Depression, which he then says, "Well, what's World War II other than a government program?" Which don't get me started. So anyway, <laughs> so I just think it's sort of funny that whenever, it's, whenever 
politicians distort incentives, distort markets, which is a big part of the financial crisis of, you know, 2007, 2008 with the mortgage-backed securities and all this kind of stuff. And or Enron before that, when these things go uh, cattywampus, all of a sudden they're like, oh, you market fundamentalists screwed everything up when the ones who screwed it up are the ones who screwed with the market fundamentals. Where am I? Where am I? Where am I less than 100 percent correct? <laughs> well, obviously no. Right, moving on. I mean, I do think I do think it's uh, I do think that some parts of the of the New Deal programs work better than others for sure, and I think that the evidence is pretty clear that World War II is what really kind of pulled the U.S. economy out of out of the crisis. I think the Fed played a role as well, which which you didn't mention. Uh, monetary policy uh, played played a role in. Uh, in the crisis, and you know, regulation played a role in, in the depression, and and and, and, all, and all these all these sorts of things. I mean, it's interesting, you know, in a political sense. You know, I, one of the big questions, of course, is you know, did you know, even if a lot of the New Deal programs didn't work, you know, did they save capitalism? Yeah, politically, you can make an argument that they were politically successful, even if they weren't great economics, and that's a much loosey goosier kind of argument to have because Americans were looking for the government to just do something. And so often the government just did things and that. And it staved off the, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a Russian revolution. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a, we didn't, we didn't, we drifted toward kind of social democracy. We did not drift toward all out socialism. You know, Father Coughlin ultimately did not succeed in, in his, in his revolution. And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much. I don't know how much credit to give uh, uh, the New Deal to that, and the perception that the government was at least, at least doing something. I do think we've gone, obviously, you know, way too far in the direction of, um, if anything bad happens, the government needs to, needs to, you know, solve the problem. I think that creates lots of moral hazard, and and uh, you know, you can you can thank the New Deal for for that too. All right. Well, I, 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 one of these days I need to have someone on here and really yell at them about the New Deal, but I'm not going to hold you accountable for it for now. Um, uh, but one of the reasons I actually wanted to have you on was um, I, I still harbor some deep and abiding resentments that John Podoritz made me read the whole Thomas Piketty book. <laughs> I remember when you did yeah, that. Yeah, and it was a lot of work for me. I mean, my lips were tired. Sure, sure. That was a long book. And there was math. You know, and I, I try to avoid that stuff. And um, turns out the math wasn't wasn't so correct. Uh, right. So like, and so I I've always been interested in this. <laughs> so for, for listeners who know, I wrote this cover story for commentary. We'll put it in the show notes about this book that at the that like 2013. Yeah, when it came out, was hailed as this guy, this French economist who I think is a decent economist from what I can tell. Right. I mean, people respect him and all that kind of. He's just wrong on some of his assumptions, but like, I don't think he's a horrible human being or anything like that. Um. But his book was hailed as both, I don't know what was more ludicrous to say it was the successor to Das Kapital or <laughs> that it was, uh, he was the successor to Alexis de Tocqueville's Reflections on America because like, <laughs> like de Tocqueville came to America and like took barges down rivers and hung out with people in inns and did firsthand reporting and, and Piketty hadn't like left Paris in 25 years or something. And it was just so <laughs> ridiculous. But anyway. Uh, he was sort of the intellectual lodestar foundation justification and legitimization for this thing, this argument that had been in the water for a very long time, but had heated up about income inequality or wealth inequality or inequality generally. I understand these, these stupid adjectives matter. And now there's this new study that's very well respected 
people have disagreements with it too, that say, yeah, never mind, that in fact inequality hasn't gotten worse. So you wrote about it, you echoed, I don't want to say echoed, but you, you came to it from a lot of the same places that I come to on this stuff. Like, let's just say I didn't know anything about it or the listeners didn't know anything about it. Can you just sort of start by just sort of level setting, explaining what the argument is and, and where it stands right now? Yeah, I mean, I would level set, I think, one step uh, before that. You know, there are lots of words uh, like inequality, the adjectives that you reference, like income and wealth, you know, all this kind of gets gets tossed about. You know, it turns out that it's actually, you know, pretty tough to define income. Um, I mean, income seems like a simple concept, right? The flow of resources a household receives for consumption or saving. But it turns out that that's actually pretty hard to define uh, in an operational sense. Give me a for instance why. Well, for instance, um, the uh, you know the the salary that you earn from the dispatch or that I earn from AEI, you know, is clearly income, right? What about what about the Medicaid benefits that low income Americans receive? They cannot take Medicaid to the grocery store and buy a loaf of bread, and so you know maybe we shouldn't think of it as income. On the other hand, they would need to purchase healthcare services if they didn't have Medicaid. And so, uh, in the healthcare uh, service market, it functions as income. So, if it's but if if we concede that it is income in healthcare services, how much income? I know how much money I get every month from AEI. You know how much money you get every month from the dispatch. You know how do we figure out how much Medicaid money Medicaid recipients get? Is it the cost to the government of providing Medicaid? Uh, is it the value of the healthcare services they actually use? You know, if they don't go to the doctor for the entire year, do they get fifteen grand in Medicaid, or do they get zero in Medicaid? Um, and so it's tricky. Uh, measuring, you know, defining inequality is also very tricky. Um, there are there are lots and lots and lots of, of different measures of, of different statistical measures of inequality. And so, you know, the kind of Piketty debate, and then the debate around the um, paper, the new paper that you reference, uh, it's it, it, it actually five years old, but it was just published. And so it's, um, it, you know, getting a lot of attention uh, in the media by Auden and Splinter. You know, they, their, their measure of inequality is the share of national income that goes to the top 1%. Uh, and the debate is over, you know, how much of uh, total national income uh, has gone to the top 1%, you know, each year for, you know, the past, you know, many decades. And, uh, and your characterization was accurate. Um, you know, uh, uh, Piketty uh, and Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, you know, find that that share has increased a lot. But um, Auden and Splinter find that find that it really hasn't, and the different findings result in you know different methodological choices about you know kind of like you know what do you do with Medicaid you know what do you do with 
uh, you know, ultimately all income accrues to people. What do you do with you know retained corporate earnings? You know, how do you uh, you know make adjustments for all the policy changes that took place in 1986 during the Reagan tax reforms? You know, this this, this sort of stuff. Um, you know, my my view is that. Certainly from uh, an academic perspective, the share of national income that goes to the top 1% is important. And I think that's important from a you know political perspective, from kind of a social perspective, from a policy perspective. But I don't think it's I don't think it's that important. Um, and I think the amount of attention that we've given to the top one percent uh, of income earners, you know, really for the last 15 years, I think, I mean, since the, since the 08 financial crisis, it kind of took a little while for, for the financial crisis to really kind of catalyze this discussion. So maybe you want to say, you know, for the last 10 years or 11 years or something like that, I think has been kind of outrageous. 99% of Americans live in the bottom 99%. Wait, hold on. I got to check your math on that. Um, give me a second. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't hear. I didn't hear the clickety clack. <laughs> I used my head. <laughs> you did it in your head. That's that's the, that's the best calculator. Um, and you know, from a and you know, I mean, in my view, from a from an economic perspective, that's very important. To focus on what's happening in the bottom ninety nine percent, and you know, that's where I think public policy should be focused, and I think it's where politics in 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 culture should be. Uh, should be focused uh, as well. You know, there you don't need you don't need to have access to you know confidential government data. You know, we we have a much better handle on what's been happening with inequality among among the bottom the bottom ninety nine percent. But you know, irrespective of of that. You know, if you're if you're a member of Congress and you're getting up in the morning and you're trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to do to make the country better? That should be your focus. Your focus should be on 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 the ninety nine percent. And you know, if you're if you're an American getting up every day, you know, living your life trying to trying to figure out, you know, what you know what what is your experience of America? What you know what is your experience of 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 of, of your community? You know, you're paying a lot more attention to people who are in the bottom ninety nine percent than you are. Into the top in, in the top one percent, and so I've I've just been confused by the amount of attention the media gives that group, the amount of attention Congress gives that group, the you know kind of populist ire directed toward that group from from both parties. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant.
I'll be more blunt. I really don't give a rat's ass about the top 1%. I mean, yeah, you're right. At some point, at some threshold, you should care, right? Like if the top 1% was getting 99% of the income, we can all agree that would be a problem, right? And so, well, and but, I think you don't even have to look. I mean, I think if you, you know, I think that there have been historical episodes in other countries where there's just deep corruption and deep cronyism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, but that's the, I mean, that's sort of the, 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 the real basic problem here is that whenever you push on why people are concerned about the 1%, they start talking about other things than inequality, right? The inequality argument as the top line thing is really just an argument about aesthetics, right? It's like, this seems like the wrong distribution of income and, um, or wealth. And, um, first of all, like we don't live in a society where wealth and income are distributed by anybody, right? It's, it's, um, and I understand that we don't have a really a good wor alternative word than distributed, but like distributed has a connotation that somehow it's all the government's money and then it's handed out to different constituencies. And that's not how it works. The word I like is earned. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, that earned works. Yeah. I like earned. Um, and I think you're, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, in, you know, the right way to think about this is that people earn their money. And then the normative policy question is how much money from higher income people should be taken from them and redistributed to lower income people. You know, my view is that a good amount should be. I mean, I think, I think we should have uh, programs that advance economic opportunity. I think we should uh, uh, make sure that in a nation as wealthy as ours, that no one falls too far, and that we and that we do have a safety net. I think it matters how those programs are designed. I think we want those programs to be designed to encourage work, not to replace work, to encourage self sufficiency, not to encourage dependency. So, you know, I'm not in favor of you know of you know any transfers, but but I think I think we want we want to have some redistribution that that would and does reduce inequality, but the objective shouldn't be to reduce the inequalities. The objective should be to advance economic opportunity for people, uh, for people who need it. Again, that's my point is that like, you know, you've turned out to be, you revealed yourself as a massive new dealer, but, uh, you know, at least the new dealers, when they talked about this stuff, they talked about a third of a nation, right? They talked about the bottom third that was poor. If you want to talk about how we need to do more for poor people, I get it. That's a, that's a good argument. The idea that somehow we should do more for, we should take more money from rich people because rich people have too much money. I just, that doesn't, just doesn't fly for me, right? Like, and I mean, I know you don't believe this, but like the way you formulated that before, um, the truth is, is like, you can't take care of the truly misfortunate or even the bottom third or however you want to put it simply by soaking the 1%. There's just not enough money in the 1% to do it. No. Right? There's not enough money in the, you know, so right now we have this ridiculous situation where, you know, the top 2% are sacrosanct in the Democratic Party. And so President Biden wants to uh, raise taxes. I'm sorry, the top 2% are the only group that isn't sacrosanct. So President Biden wants to raise taxes on the top 2% and, you know, not raise taxes on the bottom 98%. There's not enough money in the top 2% to uh, take care uh, of uh, all of the government's uh, financing needs, you know, uh, much less in the top 1%. And people don't, people don't know, people, I feel like there's not enough of a recognition in the public debate just about the, the statistics. And so, 
you know, in 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 2019, the top 1% earned about 18% of all market income, and they paid 25% of all federal taxes. And, you know, we have a very progressive system. We tax the top 1% at, you know, relatively high rates, certainly higher rates than we, than we tax, uh, 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 you know, the top 20% or, 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 or the median household. And, you know, when you're talking about federal income taxes, about half of, of, of Americans don't pay federal income taxes. So all federal income taxes are paid by, uh, by the top half, and the top 1% pay a huge share of federal income taxes. Now, there are payroll taxes and state taxes and, and sales tax. There are lots of taxes, but, but when you're looking at federal income taxes, those, 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 the, 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 those numbers are accurate. And so... You know this this idea that the top one percent, or you know, I mean, it's popularized by like this Warren Buffett silliness about you know I pay a lower tax rate than my secretary and all this sort of stuff. You know this this this, but this notion that this notion that the top one percent somehow don't pay don't pay taxes is is totally nuts. The notion that or they, their fair, I mean, fair share is a much more poetic term, right? That fair share people, can be and fair share can be debated and maybe we need higher taxes. Right. It's an eye of the beholder thing. Right. But like Yeah, but but the but the debate I think has jumped the shark where, you know, a lot a lot of the debate suggests that, you know, again, that Warren Buffett's secretary somehow has a higher tax bill than Warren Buffett, which is which is which is totally crazy. And, you know, as you say, another big problem with the debate is this idea that, you know, that that some social planner is distributing income to different parts of, of society. It skips the first step, which is where income is earned. <laughs> and, and, and then after income is earned, it is taken from some people and given uh, to other people. And, you know, I think the question then is like, why, why, why are those earnings differences acceptable uh, in a, in a democracy? And, you know, I think, I think they're acceptable if, it is the case that they're driven by productivity differences. They're different. They're driven by differences in effort. They're driven by differences in skill. They're driven by different choices. You know, so uh, if we were in, you know, kind of Latin American crony corrupt, uh, uh, you know, kind of stereotypical situation where the top one percent got all their money because they inherited it, or the top one percent got all their money because you know they engaged in criminal activity to kind of control the commanding heights of the economy or whatever, you know, then I think we are in a different kind of situation. Um, but in the United States, the top 1% uh, uh, get their money because of differences in skills, because of differences in, produ- in productivity, because of differences in effort, because of differences in risk tolerance. Um, and that's broadly true throughout the economy. Is it exclusively true? You know, of course not. I mean, there's 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 luck involved in life. Certainly, you know, there's a genetic lottery uh, that that we all you know we all draw uh, take a draw from. Um, but if you look at you know uh, what are the factors, um, and I've done this in some of my own research, you know what are the what are the factors that determine compensation? Uh, productivity is the most important factor, and so you know that I think should. To create a situation where people are comfortable uh, with inequality of earnings, 
Um, and you know, then after we all agree, okay, we have an inequality of earnings, but they are earnings. They are earned. Then let's talk about redistribution. If we approach this debate that way, it would be more empirically accurate. It would be much more closely tied to the empirical reality of the world we live in. Um, and it would you know, avoid just a lot of this weird class warfare, acrimony, you know, demonizing success. You know, it's bad to be a billionaire. We should want fewer billionaires, all this kind of stuff. Uh, that I think it really is poisonous and toxic to our to our political uh, uh, culture, and that I worry will have negative uh, effects on our economy as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's a deep seated and weird animosity towards merit and success these days that you see playing out in all sorts of K through twelve education stuff. I, I think it plays some of the some some part of a psychological role in the anti-Semitism stuff and the oppressor narrative thing. It's it's inchoate and weird, but it, it sort of goes back to that. I think it's Balzac and no need for potty mouth. I know. But uh, the that the Balzac quote behind every great fortune is a great crime, right? There is this assumption that success is an indictment of of you and somehow that somehow you uh, did something wrong by doing better than somebody else. And I think that's a very human thing. that's deeply wound up in, in, um, evolutionary psychology in all sorts of interesting ways. And that's my, my macro problem, uh, with the, sorry, didn't mean to trigger you. Uh, it's my grand problem with the inequality stuff is like, so the, there's nothing wrong with Piketty's soft thesis, which is that, uh, or Piketty, sorry, uh, that um, the richest people have gotten rich faster than the average person over a defined period of time. And maybe we should do something with it. I'm not saying he's right, but I'm just saying, okay, that's that's an empirical thing. We can make some normative moral kind of judgments about whether that's good or bad or, or whether... Well, we, it's, generally, it's, it's generally true. We, can, we, can, we, we have an argument about how much we should care, right? I mean, there are all sorts of things we can do about that. The, the, the fundamental problem with the Piketty argument is that he was trying to smuggle in this sort of soft Marxist argument that it is inherent to the system itself, that it is inevitable, that there's a teleology that says that in a capitalist system, the rich are always going to get much richer than everybody else, and eventually we'll all be paying rent to some Qatari landlord, right? It's the teleological Marxist sort of underpinning of that, which I think sneaks into a lot of the complaints about inequality where they, what they really want to do is say the system is unfair. And then they use as a aesthetic example, the 1% stuff it's, and the reason why I think it's dangerous. Um, I think it's dangerous for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is that it feeds into populism. Insofar as when you have Bernie Sanders going around saying all we would need to do is essentially, or Elizabeth Warren, right? All we need to do is, essentially confiscate the wealth of these people and we could pay for all of your stuff. But the only standing, only thing standing in between, uh, you know, you and this, you know, utopian Shangri-La of equality and, 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 uh, comfortable living are these perfidious string pulling millionaires and billionaires who are in special interests who are stopping us from doing these things that are very easy it's always the tell about whether someone's a demagogue or not is whether or not they say 
fixing some major systemic or enduring problem, challenge, whatever, would be super easy, right? It's the easy thing, right? What is it uh, Bart says when he's running for class president? My opponent says there are no easy solutions. I say he's not looking hard enough, right? <laughs> when Donald Trump says it would be easy to fix all healthcare and you could do it in two weeks. When, when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say we could have Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and all these things if we just took all the money from the top 1%, um, and, but they're the ones who are perniciously, sinisterly string pulling behind the scenes to keep us from doing these easy things. The cycle that you get into is when these people get into power, and eventually they do, you know, for, to one extent or another, and they can't actually deliver on the thing they said was super easy, they have to demonize these, these, imp these hidden forces even more and say they thwarted us again, right? It has to be like the deep state or the millionaires and billionaires or the Jews or the globalists. It always has to be somebody to blame for why this thing I swore to you was really easy. It's actually really, really hard. And that makes people angrier and it makes them search more for scapegoats and stabbed in the back narratives and, and makes them more conspiratorial. And I think 20 years of politicians saying this stuff has one of the things that contributed to the sort of crappy populist environment that we're in today. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I would even go further. I, I think it is, uh, morally repugnant to treat any group of Americans as an income generating mechanism for other people. The, the, the 1% or the billionaires or whatever, whatever phrase you want to use, you know, you know, treating, you know, treating them as a, as a kind of a means to an end for the rest of us is I think atrocious and outrageous. They are every bit as uh, citizens as the rest of us. And their welfare should be taken into account, just like every other American's welfare in in in, in making decisions. You know, we, there are hard decisions. I mean, on the one hand, you know, we shouldn't want to, uh, uh, you know, take money from people who've earned it. On the other hand, we don't want kids, you know, starving in the streets. And and public policy is hard, and and those trade offs can be can be hard uh, uh, to weigh. You know, I you know, as I said earlier, I mean, I think we should have. A safety net for sure. I think nobody should fall too far uh, in a country as rich as ours. I think we should have lots of programs uh, that are designed to expand economic opportunity and, and encourage upward mobility. And those have to be financed. And that money should come from the people who are best positioned to afford it. Um, those general principles don't tell you how much the top one percent should pay. They don't tell you what the you know, precise, you know, structure of the tax code should be, how progressive it should be, what the rate should be. There's lots of room for debate about this. Um, but, uh, but even if you believe in a progressive tax code, even if you believe in uh, programs to support economic opportunity, like I do, you should not treat the people who are, who are paying the bill as less American, as less of citizens, as, you know, less worthy of, of, kind of full membership in society. Uh, the second big problem I have with it is, you know, it's, it's exactly backwards, right? We should, we should want more billionaires. Billionaires are great. Billionaires create stuff uh, uh, that we all use. They also make a lot of consumer products affordable for us because they're the early adopters who create the scale 
right? The Gordon Geckos are the ones who pay $5,000 for a really giant friggin' mobile phone. So the rest of us can pretty soon pay, you know, $50. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at it and if you look at, you know, you know, particularly inventors, I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, I wish I had the statistics uh, handy. Um, but if you, if you look at, if you look at somebody like, like uh, Nordhaus, uh, I'm sorry, if you look at somebody like Jeff Bezos, um, let's see, I, this was true in 2019 uh, when I wrote it. I did, a, I did a little, I did a little back of the envelope calculation. So there's an economist named William Nordhaus who uh, won the Nobel prize. You know, he, he, he asked a question, which is, okay, if you're a, if you're an inventor and you, uh, you know, advance technology, that makes society richer. How much of that uh, additional wealth does the inventor get? And his calculation was 2.2%. That, that innovators capture 2.2% of the total social value of their innovations. And so in, uh, in 2019, four years ago, I just went through and did some kind of back-of-the-envelope uh, calculations. And at that time... Jeff Bezos uh, was worth $114 billion, which means that the value that he created for the rest of society was $5.2 trillion. The value Bill Gates created for the rest of society was $4.8 trillion. The value that Larry Ellison created for the rest of society was $3 trillion. The value that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google, created for the rest of society was $5 trillion. These people... These people create trillions of dollars of value, and then they get a small slice of that for themselves. That's a great deal. The message that young people should receive is you should, billionaires are great. Grow up and become a billionaire. Grow up and change the world in the marketplace. And yes, you can, you can, you can get rich, and it's great to be rich, but really what you'll, what your real contribution is is the is the is is the wealth you're creating for the rest of society, not for yourself. That should be the message. Instead, you've got you know major public figures, elected leaders, presidential candidates, you know, saying you know billionaires are bad. Every billionaire is a policy mistake. I mean, that is just that is just a, a, a crazy, horrible thing to tell young people. I just, I, just, I I can't. I haven't quoted in a while. I used to mention it all the time on here, but our colleague, uh, Tim Carney, it always stuck with me, had this great riff, right, about the phrase, you always hear it from really rich people, I decided I wanted to give back. The This country's been so good to me, and I get it. I'm all in favor of philanthropy. Philanthropy's great. It's another, that's another great thing about billionaires, about super rich people, is they th- build things like melon libraries and all that kind of stuff. But so anyway, the the creator of the cronut I'm sorry. The creator of the cronut. Cronut. It's a cross between a croissant and a donut. Oh, huge thing a while back. I see. He made million, tens of millions of dollars off of it, if not hundreds of millions. He made a lot of money. Ha- announced that he was starting some philanthropy because he wanted to give back. This country's been so good to me. I want to give back. Again, I love the sentiment, but the actual framing of the concept is wrong. And it was Tim who said, "Look, in a market." You don't owe us anything. You gave us the cronut, right? And like, you didn't take, that's the problem. The language of all this stuff is that about billionaires and millionaires taking stuff 
when in fact the only reason why unless they're you know yeah if they're the descendant of a millionaire billionaire that's a different thing and i'm i'm with schumpeter on this stuff they end up most of them end up being irresolute hunter biden like jackwads but like the but the guys who actually create something new some pill some you know some medicine some you know technology they don't they're not taking anything away they're making this massive contribution. <laughs> and again, I'm not trying to align as them. I, I, we both know a good number of very rich people. Some of them are jerks. I mean, and that, one of the reasons they got rich was because they had the ability, you know, the, the sort of spectrum of the ability to be jerks and not take no for an answer or whatever. I mean, like Elon Musk is sort of like that, right? There are a lot of jerks who aren't billionaires. Yes, that's true. Being a jerk is not is sometimes necessary, but it's never sufficient, right? That's right. But like, I mean, to just sort of capitalize on your point for a second, let's say, for example, somebody invents desktop cold fusion, which will tomorrow, not tomorrow, but in in our lifetimes, if somebody invented it, a scalable, workable model today. I, I already somewhere in the distance, Jim Pethokoukis is, is perking. He's up. salivating. He is going, getting too messy. <laughs> he's he's going to have a second caffeine-free diet Coke this morning. And, uh, to celebrate. So if someone did that, right? By progressive's own terms, forget our terms, right? By progressive's own terms, that means the phase out of all fossil fuels begins forthwith, right? Plus you don't need these stupid friggin' windmills and solar panels anymore that kill all these animals and use up all this landscape, you basically just have these machines that go chapakada, chapakada, produce water as a byproduct and give clean, renewable, permanent energy for all time. And what would you say that's worth? A lot of money. Now, let's say the guy says, I can do it, but I get 4% of the returns on it. Of course you'd say yes. I mean, like, why, you know, like the idea, it, it's sort of like in the, in this Piketty, you know, stuff, if you, you, in your piece that you wrote, um, you talk about how much richer normal Americans have gotten since 1962, which for some reason is the year that a lot of this stuff starts with. And if you had told people in 1962, Hey, look, you're going to get, your number was, I thought amusingly precise, 499% richer. But we're going to have a lot more billionaires with super yachts at the same time. I whipped out the protractor to come up with that one. And at like most people, it's most people would say deal, right? You know, like, like I'd like to become one of the billionaires, but I'll take 499% richer as a perfectly acceptable cut of this new political economy bargain. And so, and the thing that drives me crazy is the people who say, well, since 1962, the number of billionaires or one percent, the amount of wealth that goes to the one percenters has gone from nine percent of the economy to 15 percent of the economy, as if there is some correct answer lurking out there that is aesthetically pleasing to everybody. I mean, like radically egalitarian societies had one percents, too, and they were a lot less just. But, you know, anyway, I could rant about this. I apologize. Um no, for sure. And people don't, I think, you know, there's a weird, I mean, there's so much, there's so much nostalgia in, in, in both political parties and both political movements. And it's just completely misplaced. You know, this idea that, you know, we should roll back the clock to the seventies, we should roll back the clock to the fifties or, 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 or whenever. And, you know, somehow life was better than, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just totally it's just totally nuts. 
Um, and I don't understand where, I mean, it's, you know, sometimes I just wonder like, do people, you know, do the people who are peddling this stuff, uh, just not have any like personal experiences of, you know, I think about, I think about my, 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 I have an, I have an aunt who got sick as a kid and, you know, a young kid got, got sick and my grandparents were very worried that she was going to die. And a doctor came to their house and gave her a shot of penicillin and she was fine. And, you know, then I think about like my own kids, you know, they get sick all the time. I'm never worried they're going to die. It never crosses my mind. We go to the pediatrician, they get an antibiotic. What I'm worried about is like how fussy are they going to be about taking the antibiotic? <laughs> I'm, I'm not worried about them dying from an ear infection or, 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 or something or something like that. You know, my um, grandparents, they had outhouses. They had to, they had to leave their house in the middle of winter to go to the bathroom outdoors. I mean, it's just like, you know, and I think, and I think it's easy to, it's easy to dismiss, you know, one of the, one of the things that the, that the nostalgists do, you know, particularly the kind of, you know, uh, conservative populist economic nationalist types is they trivialize this, right? Like, Oh, your TV is bigger. Oh, you know, is that worth, is that worth, you know, the destruction of, you know, the American family and the culture that made America great or whatever. And, you know, and I do think people can take this kind of, you know, kind of material cons consumption consumer based argument too far. And I think consumerism is a real moral problem uh, in, in the United States. But, you know, the fact that we have widespread access to antibiotics and we don't die of infections is not in the same category as, oh, your TV is bigger. You know, the fact, the fact uh, that jobs are so much safer and it is no longer common to know people who have lost limbs because they went to work is not a, oh, your TV, your TV is bigger. Uh, kind of argument. The fact that people don't die in plane crashes, the fact that the mortality rate from cardiovascular disease has plummeted uh, in recent decades, these are not trivial uh, improvements in the quality of life. And I think if you look at, you know, inequality, I mean, we were talking earlier about kind of, you know, some questions and, you know, some kind of basic questions in economics. Yeah, here's a big question in, in, in economics. What do people care about? You know, we talk a lot about income. We talk, you know, about wealth, less than we do about income, but discussions about wealth inequality have grown in, 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 in recent years. Do people, do people care? What, 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 what do people actually care about? If you get up every day and you're making decisions, you know, with objectives in mind, you know, what are you, what are you trying to do? You're probably trying to consume you probably care about consumption, right? You know, I don't, I, 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 I care about, you know, what, what do we mean by consumption? I care about putting a roof over my family's head. I care about uh, being able to send my kids to college. I care about being able to provide opportunities for my kids. I care about being able to, you know, uh, uh, you know, take my family on vacations and, you know, this, you know, the, you know, this sort of stuff, right? I care about, 
you know, we just had a, the, our, our ceiling is, we had a, uh, uh, a couple of days ago, we had that horrible rainstorm and I walked into my son's bedroom and my foot got wet when I took a step to the right and I looked up and the ceiling was leaking. You know, I care about him being able to sleep in a house where, where the roof keeps the water out, right? That's all consumption. All that counts as consumption. And if you look at, at, at consumption inequality over the last you know, century, um, it has narrowed remarkably. You, know, you and I hang out with a lot of rich people, and you know, I, I'm always shocked by how much I have in common with them. You know, you know eat, at, eat at the same restaurants and you know, watch the same TV shows and read the same books and and, uh, you know, in some instances, you know, kids go to the same schools and, you know, all this sort of stuff. You know, that wasn't true 100 years ago, for sure. There was there was the, the gap, the, the gap in consumption and quality of life was 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 much, much broader. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's, it's an important point to think about, because like when I when I make this point to people, it was like, look, I, I have the same phone as most billionaires. Right. I mean, it's not like there's this special phone special laptop special tv right i mean these things kind of cap out at a certain price and the thing they always come back with well you know like private jets and that kind of stuff i'm very envious of people with private jets i really am um the the time saving the comfort the lack of stress it's real but if you're looking at the big picture of the world the difference between flying coach and flying private is much smaller than the ability to fly at all yes. <laughs> versus, you know, whatever. Similarly, like they have nicer cars. I like my car, but like my car does all the stuff that their car does, right? It's just, it's just less of a Veblen good than what they've got. And so the actual utility function between what billionaires have and what we have, what the middle class has, right? I mean, we don't forget about us, just like normal people is pretty flat in the grand scheme of things. And anybody who lives in the sort of median household income thing, if you describe, if they described objectively to somebody who lived 50, 75 years earlier, what they have as part of their lives, they would think you were describing how rich they are, right? I mean, just on the, on a very basic level. Yes, a hundred percent. And my, you know, my grandmother was born in 1919 and, you know, she just, did she go to high school with Joe Budden? Uh, she did. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden was actually babysat for her. Um, <laughs> you know, she just like could not, she could not, you know, the, the amount, you, you mentioned air travel, the amount of air travel I do just totally blew her mind. I mean, and she would, and she would actually say things like, well, who pays for all that? <laughs> and, and, you know, yes, it is. It's, 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 it's remarkable. The short time we have left, I wanted to ask you about. I, I'm really enjoying. I don't. I really don't care that a Japanese company is buying U.S. steel or wants to buy U.S. steel. I don't think it's a that big a deal. I think it's a little sad what's happened to U.S. steel. I get the sort of nostalgia of it and all that kind of thing. Um, it bothers me that IBM is some sort of weird boutique Chinese firm, as far as I can tell these days. These things happen, right? The Budweiser bothers me. But what? But what? Budweiser is problematic. The fact that. I think Jameson's own, is owned by a French company. Is outrageous. Oh, I didn't know that. that. That is outrageous. I think it's kind of good and clarifying that all these people have been talking about 
industrial policy and and national, you know, uh, bring home the supply chains, you know, domestic capacity stuff, all these sorts of national economic stuff. They've been clinging to the national security argument pretty strongly for the last five years, if not the last 50 years. And now they're saying one of our closest allies, it's a threat to national security for them to buy a steel company. And I, I just kind of like the mask coming off aspect of all of this. But am, am I am I missing something? No, I don't think you're missing anything. I mean, I think, you know, there are there are there are some American companies that that occupy a, a you know, cultural role. They're, they have a role in our in our culture and U.S. steel is one of them. And, you know, the ones we mentioned are uh, others. I mean, Budweiser, you know, I think is a is a is a company that is important in a cultural sense and not just an economic sense. And so, you know, oh, U.S. steel is no longer an American company. I think is a natural reaction to 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 a cultural development, but it's not some from but from an economic perspective, it's not something that we should particularly care about. And you know, I think there are to the broader point. I mean, there are I think legitimate national security concerns about you know some supply chains. Um, but I I you know my reading is the same as yours, which is that. You know, typically, when that's invoked, it is um, not a not a valid or compelling argument. Yeah. So here's the thing: I don't quite understand, right? I mean, and and I was I remember David Brooks telling me I was the first conservative to get off the bandwagon with the. You may not remember this because you were probably in college or something. The Dubai port deal. Dubai wanted to buy um, some port. I, I think it was in Louisiana. And it was wild. Both Democrats and Republicans lost their minds about this. And we see something similar these days with all the stuff about China buying farmland. Now, look, I'm all for putting all sorts of pressure on China for all sorts of reasons. But the part of the argument that I never quite get is these people say we need these resources for national security. And I'm totally with you about like, you know, like predator drone manufacturers. Let's have those in the States. That's great. I don't disagree with that. But like, Soybean farm. Let's say we go to war with China. Do we think that China is going to be able to order that farm to not be used by the United States government in some way or by by American? Like uh, if if we go to war with Japan, which I don't see how that's going to happen. Do we think that like Japan is going to be able to continue to import steel from its factories in the United States. Um, I mean, the, 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 the corporate ownership issue is often sort of a way for people to smuggle in these sort of assumptions that somehow these people now control our capacity to produce steel or soybeans or whatever. It's not like if Dubai, if the Dubai company, I think it was, maybe it was Dubai ports, maybe they'll go, if they had bought this American port, for the purpose of permanently shutting it down to take out competition, I'd be totally against it, right? But like soybeans are a commodity in a global market. The soybeans are still going to be sold to China that are made in the United, that are grown in the United States. The steel is still going to be sold on a global steel market. The fact that the entities that take a slight fraction more of the profits from these things are abroad 
it doesn't change the equation in ways that I think a lot of people want to insinuate, or or does it? I mean, am I, uh, this is not my no, value. No, it doesn't. And I think you're seeing you're seeing this with the whole kind of decoupling argument from China. You know, how do you, you know, okay, great. How do you how do you do that? You know, if if we're currently buying things from China, and then we decide to decouple, and what happens instead is that China sells things to Vietnam, and we buy things from Vietnam. Are we, you know, what are we, what are we doing? There we right. go. I can see how that gets really complicated really quickly. Clearly, you're getting tired of me. Um, so uh, you said that you have some recommendations for TV to watch. Um, I haven't been to the scholars table at AI in a little while to get these firsthand. What are you watching these days? I do have some recommendations for TV to watch. There's this great movie that I watched. You know, I have little kids, so I watch movies in 20-minute increments over a period of like eight days. It's called Leave the World Behind. Have you seen that one? I think I've heard of it, but I have not seen it. Netflix, Mm -hmm. Julia Roberts. Oh, yeah, okay. Ethan Hawke. Uh Uh-huh. Very good, I thought. Uh, Very, very good. That's the one where Julia Roberts is dancing and got a lot of grief for it. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I didn't know she got grief for it, but she does dance and it was weird. There was, there was a whole thing about how she looked like Elaine from Seinfeld. <laughs> she did, I guess. There's this great show called Slow Horses on Apple Love TV. Slow Horses, but I, ha- I have to save this one. My wife's in Europe. She's coming back tomorrow. Uh, I'm saving season three to watch with her. Okay. Well, those are my two. Okay. Those are my two for you. So um, I'm a big fan of the Amazon show Reacher. I haven't watched that. It's, it's more loyal to the actual books than the Tom Cruise one was because in the books... Reacher is like six six, <laughs> this monster of a dude, and then Tom Cruise with his special heels is like five five. <laughs> uh, but it, although I like the Reacher movies, um, but this Reacher show, it's smarter than the the gratuitous violence and nudity would suggest, and um, and it's pretty good. Um, I, I don't want to give Hethakukis too much of the satisfaction, but I like For All Mankind. I was going to ask you about For All Mankind. I yell at the TV a lot watching it because there's a lot of stuff in it that I think is kind of dumb. Um, How far in are you? Most, I think maybe one show behind in the latest season. See, I haven't watched any of it because of Pethagoukas' enthusiasm for it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. It's a mark against it. Oh, we've been rewatching The Americans during this this dearth of, of, of viewing. And um, it, is, it is really... I mean, I, I wrote about this at the time but I think I probably undersold how unbelievably right wing the Americans is. Yeah. And it completely, completely went under the radar of a lot of left wingers. I mean, like the kinds of things that my dad in his more paranoid anti-communist moments would accuse the left of doing in the United States or the KGB of doing, they were doing 10 X yeah. in the Americans, right? The civil rights movement is co-opted by the KGB and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And it just goes right over. People's and the heads, Russians so are horrified of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan looks right. Ronald Reagan is is winning the Cold War in the Americans, and for exactly the reasons his defenders said he was. I just it's just sort of amazing because it's the kind of thing that if it had been put out by a right wing television production, you know, if if Ben some Ben Shapiro kind of shop had put it out, it would uh it would have been ridiculed for this sort of cartoonish version of the 1980s when you know it instead of got all this praise. Um, did you not watch Strange New Worlds? I am watching Strange New Worlds. Yeah. I think it's good. 
I think it's the best Star Trek franchise in a long time. Yes, I think that's right. I think it's the best since... I think it's arguably the best since Deep Space Nine. That's defensible. That's definitely defensible. Um, I, I, liked, I liked Enterprise. Yeah, I never really got into it. Uh, I thought the first couple seasons were good. I thought Voyager was really bad. Um, and I thought Discovery was unwatchable. Discovery was like Randy Weingarten was the script consultant for it. I mean, it was just so... Again, I have no problem with a lot of the sort of touching on controversial social issues, cultural issues in a sci-fi context. That's a place where you can do that. And like the original Star Trek did a lot of that, you know. Um, the original Star Trek had the first interracial kiss on TV. Yes. And um, God, Let This Be Your Last Battlefield, I think is the title of the episode. It's the episode where the guy who played the Riddler from the Batman series has his half, half of his face is white and half of his face is black. And he's in this eternal struggle with this guy who's been hunting him whose half whose face is half white and half black, but the black is on the left side rather than the right side, whatever. And it was a great, uh, very didactic, but great sort of jab at the sort of, uh, the way our tribal selves uh, create these shibboleths and, and, and whatever. But Discovery was just, I get it. You're like really into transgender stuff. And <laughs> I mean, I couldn't even make it through the first season. Yeah, it got worse. I mean, it really got worse. And then what's her face? Stacey Abrams is the president of the, of earth. Um, oh, is that the right? third season. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, cause it's what the market was demanding. Is that Stacey Abrams come in and, and yeah. be president of Earth? And what they did to the Klingons was just terrible. In that show. It was very weird. It was very weird. You know, like it's not sacrosanct. It was fine. You know, like the next generation totally changed Klingons, right? With war. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And that's fine. And the movies changed them. But, you know, they were just, they were, it was just unpleasant to watch. I mean, it was very odd. All right. Well, I got nothing else for you. Um, We'll put your, uh, which we didn't really get to explore in any, any great detail, but we'll put uh, in the show notes. Uh, your state of democratic capitalism 2023 piece for the Georgetown University Law Center. I'm sure Michael Novak is smiling down upon us from above um, <laughs> with hope. that title and the fact that you wrote it at Georgetown. <laughs> Someone will get those references. Uh, thanks for doing this. Yes, for sure. Great to see you. All right. So Dr. Strain uh, has left the studio. Uh, good to catch up with him. We got a little deep in the weeds in parts, but like I sometimes like to get in the weeds just to make sure my priors or my my assumptions are right and so i just sometimes i'm just listening to see if i should be listening and um december 19th we're recording this and that means we are six days from christmas and i don't know what is that uh well 13 days something like that i said there would be no math from new year's there is time to get a gift subscription to the dispatch great last minute thing because you can do it literally first thing in the morning christmas morning you can do it on christmas eve you can do it right now get a gift subscription for someone uh uh you think would benefit from the dispatch and from what we're doing um and lord knows we would benefit if you did it as well we had a lot of conversations uh in these meetings about what our natural you know how big is our market? How what what's the what's the right size? What should be our expectations for subscribers and all these kinds of things? And lots of different points of view and lots of different rules of thumb and in this industry and all that kind of stuff. And uh, 
my basic view is, is that there's a lot more room to grow. I mean, we nobody disagrees that there's not more room to grow, but I think there's a lot more room to grow. You know, we had, I don't know, 250, 300 people show up at the the thing I did in, in Bellevue, Washington last week. And, you know, we had, we had one guy flying from Ketchikan, Alaska. We had people driving. A bunch of people drove from Portland and places like that. Uh, a bunch of people from uh, eastern Washington. I just have to think that if if th- those are the people who were, and they were so enthusiastic and so encouraging and really I was so grateful for their gratitude for the dispatch and for what we're doing and all these other things. Most of those people have to know one other person who would be a good fit for the dispatch. Most of the people out there listening, if you're not a subscriber, you're probably a good fit. If you are a subscriber, you probably know someone who's a good fit. And so I just think like our natural audience at minimum is, uh, you know, twice the size of our current subscribers, if not, you know, several X of, of, of what it is. And we want to grow. We need to grow. We have incredibly loyal readers and, um, but we need more of them. So, uh, this is a great time of year to get a gift subscription for somebody. Um, there are all sorts of deals. I don't know what the current ones are, but just go to the website and you can figure it out. It's just the dispatch.com. And with that, um, Okay, so, uh, oh, one last thing. There's um, time to do uh, to send in your questions for the next AMA. I know we ran a little late on doing this. Uh, it's just been a crazy busy month. Uh, so uh, send your uh, questions to the remnant at thedispatch.com. And uh, this time, I think we're going to try and have me do a little homework for the ones that are tough or complicated rather than just wing it. Uh, but maybe not. I don't know what the questions are yet. So um, send them along and... Um, Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>